diversity, equity, inclusion. NACOM, as well as many other organizations, have made a commitment to the values of providing equal justice regardless of race, gender, age, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation or identity, disability, or socioeconomic status. What is the court's ethical obligation regarding these values, particularly when it comes to implementing court operations? I'm Pete Kiefer and welcome to A Question of Ethics, a conversation on the ethical issues confronting courts today. This episode is a conversation recorded as part of the Ethics Subcommittee Conference Call on March 24, 2022. The questions we'll explore include, do courts have an ethical obligation to implement policies and procedures that ensure the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion are applied to a court's processes? Can a court equitably apply diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, to assessing fines, costs, and fees? If so, how do you go about doing that? And how do you ensure that the application of DEI is measurable? Our moderator today is Courtney Whiteside, Director of the Municipal Court in St. Louis, Missouri. Courtney is also Chair of the Ethics Subcommittee. Now, before we start the conversation, I want to go over a couple of ethics canons which are referenced during the conversation. Canon 1.1, Performing Court Duties. A court professional faithfully carries out all appropriately assigned duties, striving at all times to perform the work diligently, efficiently, equitably, thoroughly, courteously, honestly, openly, and within the scope of the court professional's authority. Canon 1.3, fairness. A court professional makes the court accessible and conducts his or her work without bias or prejudice. Canon 1.4, respect for others. A court professional treats litigants, co-workers, and all others interacting with the court with dignity, respect, and courtesy. So now let's join Courtney, the Ethics Subcommittee, and their guests in today's conversation. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a term used to describe policies and programs that promote the representation and participation of different groups of individuals, including people of different ages, races, ethnicities, abilities, and disabilities, genders, religion, cultures, and sexual orientations. Our task for today for our ethics discussion was using canons 1.1, 1.3, 1.4, and 4 as provided to discuss the following questions. So what we will do, I will ask the questions and you guys just chime in. Question number one, do courts have an obligation to implement policies and programs that ensure DEI is applied to the court's process? What does court process mean in that context? Uh, the court's process, uh, what meaning whatever uh, your court's process is, because we're all like, I'm limited jurisdiction. My process is going to differ from a civil process or a family court process or juvenile process. So I got you, but you mean actual like the, the filing and disposition of a case is what you mean by process? Yes. More or less. Okay. Well, yeah, through all of it. Each, each portion of it, yes. Um, Chris Hansard, I'm just court think, administrator, like, Superior Court, yeah, Cobb County, Georgia. Moral obligation to ensure EDI through the court process. Is that the gist of it? 
Do courts have an obligation to implement policies and programs that ensure DEI is applied to the court's process? I guess I'm I'm struggling with applying it to the court process. I mean, I mean, anyone, and I'm thinking like on our court commission statement, you know, which says like anyone who steps in here who can get to get something filed needs to have that resolved. It matters not and shouldn't matter not what their immutable characteristics are or, or, or what their immutable characteristics are for that matter. If they're here and they've got legal and our court has legal jurisdiction over their matter, it needs to be resolved. Um, and we all try to do it efficiently and impartially and well, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I guess I get the question doesn't even really make sense to me. Like, I mean, if, if we're not doing that, then I'm not really sure what it is that we're doing. I think I love that answer because that was my thought process when I was writing it. Like, isn't this the whole like well, thing that we're supposed to be doing? So it's difficult. Yes, Peter. So, but 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 I but right, but but then I assume maybe I'm like missing the point and I'm too stupid to understand <laughs> it. So I don't. I want to leave room for that possibility as well. Well, I think, oh, I, think I would interpret that question in a a more a broader sense in terms of whether we have an obligation to identify systemic bias and to eliminate systemic bias when we see it as part of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those are some of my thoughts with respect to- Kent Pankey, Senior Planner, Virginia Supreme Court. Consistent also on the equitable, I think for this particular question, it's easier to answer on the equitable front as opposed to diversity and inclusion. And certainly when you're trying to provide access to, to the court system itself and to the adjudicative process, one reason we guarantee counsel in criminal cases is to provide that equity for those who can't otherwise afford counsel. So I think there is definitely some degree of obligation, at least on the equity front. It's harder, except with respect to the bias um, on the diversity and inclusion front. I mean, I think this goes to, and I will mount my soapbox on this topic, one of the areas which, if we all look into our heart of hearts, knows that we can do it if we want, but very few courts actually try to do it, and that is to analyze judgments and convictions by race, sex, age, sexual orientation. We don't do it, and I don't know about the rest of you, but for my entire career, I mean, we had a set of fairly standard responses as to why we do not produce that information, even though we know it's there. Now, it's hard to do because in some places, the uh, racial, ethnic, sexual, and sexual orientation information are in separate systems, which would require marrying up the data between say the booking system and the uh, case management system. But it can be done if we had the will and determination to do it. But most of the sentencing analyses that I've ever seen, to be honest, more often than not seems to come from some poor grad student who was hired by their professor who goes down to the courthouse and manually looks up these cases and they find 200, 300, 400 cases. And, you know, I guess that's fine in a way, but I mean, we know that we can provide that information 
on a much broader scale if we had the the will to do it. Marshall? Hi, so before I make a couple of comments regarding this question, I do want to make the occupational hazard that the views that I'm expressing are my own and not representative of either my employer or sure. the educational institution that I'm a part of. And so Marshall Comia, Judicial Fellow, Office of Governmental Affairs, of Judicial Council of California. Question, but it's also a very abstract question. The way that I'm viewing obligation is sort of an attitude towards how specific courthouse workplaces view policies and programs that seek to target diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think the mindset of having an obligation, then making sure that from the top down leadership feels and messages very clearly that diversity is something that is important would possibly help create a workplace culture in a mindset that a courthouse as a workplace is inclusive for minorities who want to possibly get into the field of court administration. Because if we're looking at the battle that the judicial branch is already facing, it's that historically it is a, it is a white dominated institution. And if we wanna be able to bring more folks in, we have to establish a workplace that that would make it more inviting for minorities to join in. Thank you. Does anybody have anything to add to question one? It, you know, questions like this always make me immediately feel like a bureaucrat <laughs> preoccupied with details and implementation and practical effects. Carl Tonis, court administrator, Second Judicial Circuit Court, Sioux Falls, yes, South Dakota. We should all be committed to diversity and inclusion, and we should all adopt practices that embrace that that concept on some idealistic level, but I immediately go to, well, here, let, let's take, I, I think we're talking about two different things here. Maybe, um, you know, Marshall talks about what I think is maybe internal workforce issues, that sort of thing. Peter, on the other hand, mentioned sentencing disparities, for example, which I think are two distinct areas that mm -hmm. we, would, we would handle in different ways. Let me follow up on Peter's point. Say, for example, we all embraced sentencing disparity. In other words, we all we suddenly became very open and had powerful data capabilities to track sentencing disparities by demographics. Okay, say for example, the data show that there's a sentencing disparity. Then what? Say for example, one demographic tends to get a, you know, more days of jail time. Okay, and, and we all may suspect sort of anecdotally, or, or maybe even objectively, that disparity is out there. Where do you go with that? I mean, I know some courts have numeric risk assessments, you know, scores, pre-sentence analysis, where they give everybody a score, and then the, the, the defense bar will push back and say, well, you can't turn human beings into widgets. And then I think there's some merit to that objection or concern. That's my problem with discussions like this. I think on an idealistic broad values level, we all think, yes, this ought to be an objective that every court system has. The mission statement for the court system in South Dakota is justice for all, for all, for everybody, evenly applied. But if we were to, to adopt Peter's analysis, okay. And if there's a sentencing disparity, 
okay and we ought to try to correct it but what do you do with that where do you go with that to tr to try to correct that disparity i mean that's the problem i think the I we all hold that ideal i just don't know how you translate that into practical reality do you tell a judge because that person happens to be a, a different demographic group member that you shave a couple days off the sentence no of course not o okay then but then then where do you go i mean how how do you correct and we and the, you know the question asks about procedures and policies o okay what does it say? You want to correct that skew? Okay. Then what would your policy and procedure say? And that's where I get stuck. That's where I hit hit that brick wall and feel like a bureaucrat. Agreed. I think it's very it's very difficult. And like I said before, it was even difficult coming up with these questions. This question was intentionally phrased the way that it was because it could go anywhere. And it applies to so many different facets. We do talk about our, our policies, programs, and procedures within uh, within the court, and we but we also talk about applying those to those who have business with the court. And uh, I don't think you can talk about them separately without also talking about them together, but also trying to keep them separate. So it's just yeah. you kind of constantly feel like you're going around in a circle. Marshall, did you have something else to add, or did you just leave your hand up? Uh, no, I did have a couple of things to add that okay. I hope can speak more to the sentencing disparity topic that we were all talking about. And I want to make two comments about that. Firstly, at least in California, one of the things that um, Chief Justice Kanto Saka Uwe made a priority when she became chief was broader implicit bias training for all court employees and judges to, at the outset, be able to do their best to inhibit some of those biases that may pop up in the first place. And secondly, with regard to that sentencing data, uh, thinking more broadly than just courts, one of the bills that the California legislature passed in, I believe it was 2020, was Assembly Bill 2542. This was dubbed the Racial Justice Act. And among other things, one of the primary things that is done was prohibiting the state from seeking a, a criminal conviction or sentence based on the basis of race, ethnicity, or national origin as specified. And so when we think about needing to, to help the legislature implement that statute, I guess having that kind of data might be helpful to achieving the goals of that bill. And additionally, this bill right now, there have been iterations to make this apply retroactively, but that hasn't gone anywhere. But the main point was with AB 2542, which prohibited the sentences based on those implicit determination of biases, the court using robust data could be a partner in making that legislation effective by providing data on it some way, somehow. So that is a perfect segue into question number two. Using Canon's 1.1 performing court duties and 1.3 fairness, can you equitably apply DEI to assessing fines and costs and fees? If so, how do you go about doing that? Kind of the, what we were talking about. And uh, I'll add to that that a, a common uh, concern is measurable. So the, the, the bill that Marshall, that you were just discussing out of California, does it provide for a way to measure what that means and um, 
what what does that look like? But can you equitably apply DEI to assessing fines, costs, and fees? And if you can, how? Aren't most fines and fees statutorily set? At least they are in Georgia, so I don't. You have some to talk. Are, to some, well, the fine for all of your anything, the fine is statutorily set, or the fee. I'd have to check, but it's probably a little of both. Anyway, I guess my point was, I feel like a lot of it's legislatively prescribed, so yeah, I feel like it'd be difficult. Now, restitution might be a different thing. Well, and I think, again, that goes to the broader question, which we have seen discussed at times, is that at least for some period of time, the current the, the rage was for user fees, to apply as many user fees as we could. I know... In the court I worked at, we had a had a booking fee. So when you were booked into jail, you had you were charged with that booking fee. There was a fee for every night in jail you spent, like it was a hotel. If you didn't come to court, you were charged a warrant fee for the issuance of the warrant. You were charged a fee for the quashing of the warrant. You were charged a fee for every time you visited your probation officer. You're charged a fee every time you go to driver training school or anger management school. And the result in many of these is that these folks that start off with a fairly specific fine and maybe as, you know, some sort of a fee end up paying thousands upon thousands of dollars more than the original fine was that was levied because they can't ever get beyond the user fees that are tacked on continually. I have recently, somebody just uh, put this phrase out there, it was just kind of mind-blowing, and it was the process should not be the punishment. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that spoke volumes to me when I was thinking about the equitable application of fines and costs. And when I say costs or fees, Chris, thank you for bringing that up. I should have been more specific um, and to Peter's point, the failure to appear fee, warrant fee, bond fee, all of these little ancillary little things that get tacked on, our court costs um, are statutorily set. So that's a, we don't even have the discretion on, you know, what to assess on those, but fines we do. So applying those equitably, I think is difficult. Kent. This uh, topic of equitable application of fines has been covered in some degree going back decades. Uh, The term means-based fines or day fines is very common in Europe, where for a given offense, the amount of the fine is tailored to the income of the offender. So that it's sort of an equal pain as opposed to an equal penalty. And it has been tested in the United States going back 30 some years or so, but it ran into the tough on crime trends of the 90s and and died. But it has recently gotten, because of the DEI type of discussions that we're having now, it's getting some rebirth. It still hasn't gotten a lot of traction, but it's coming back uh, because I think the populace in the United States is a little more sensitive and willing to hear the idea. No, I know to, to exactly what you're talking about. I think it was um, an executive in Finland who found himself with a hundred and three thousand dollars speeding ticket because <laughs> they have that means-based um, assessment of fines. And I would like to know what your 
what your monthly income is that they are able to find you one hundred and three thousand dollars. <laughs> but hey, I, I yeah, just a day. I would wonder what that was like. But I think I think it is catching traction. I know we're we're looking at doing some things here. What about uh, do we have any judges on here that would assess or make the decision on? fines and costs or as an administrator how do you navigate the the fee portion i said like the legislature has like a list of 36 different pots of money that they want those fees to go into and they gotta they gotta go Um, yeah those those surcharges have been considered contrary to public policy since the mid-80s when costco came up with their standards relating to court costs it was the the, the fact that they never died was the topic of my ICM fellows paper back in the 90s. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Uh, yeah, I, I'd love it if they died, but there'd be a bunch of stuff around here and police officers and firefighters that didn't get their pensions if they all went away. So. Yeah. Our Supreme Court, I think we're getting, I think we're getting there as of June of last year. We'll see. Kara, yes. Kara Anderson, Judicial Fellow, Superior Court, Placer County, California. Generally, I don't know a lot about the specifics there. Marshall knows the policy stuff. But one thing that comes to mind is a new program that has uh, attempts to demystify the public right and ability to ask judicial officers for reconsiderations of their fines and fees. So, you know, where historically and broadly people can just come to court and say, hey, can I not pay that? or do community service or pay less or whatever. It's now becoming more accessible through an online program that explicitly tells people that they have the option to ask that, which is on the back end virtually sending those requests to the judges and then they're able to make orders without someone coming into court. So it doesn't necessarily affect fines and fees with any guarantee, but it does make uh, control over those a little bit more accessible for both the petitioner and the judge. Uh, right. You know, this is this is making me feel like a bureaucrat again because you know <laughs> the, the, our topic is DEI and and all a lot of this fine and fee equity stuff we're talking about is really uh, means indexed or, or you know according to means and, and doesn't have too much to do with demographics. But um, there again, I think to myself, okay, I mean, what are we going to have a fee schedule for? certain demographic groups and another feed schedule for other demographic groups to, to, to correct a skew? No, of course not. And, and so, boy, as a practical matter, when you set aside Jeff Zuckerberg's million dollar speeding ticket, I mean, if we're, we're really talking about DEI, I, once again, I, I run into a brick wall of not knowing where you go with this, if we're going to try to address, you know, demographics or racial equity or social equity, rather than just how much money do you have in your checking account? I think that's an interesting point of view. I think that, you know, yes, fines are, you know, something we look at that, you know, are they practicable or that, you know, how how do we level the playing field, if you will. But I think that we have to, in order for it to be a more equal equitable system we have to bring bring some of those means-based situations to the table uh, to look at it but the the question ultimately always ends up is how do we how do we implement uh marshall yeah so just to expand a little bit on what kara was talking about earlier as well as address some of the administrative concerns about gearing these types of programs to be able to be more equitable and inclusive is the, the program that Kara was talking about earlier is called the, the My Citations program. It was originally a pilot program, but 
through the California budget, it was expanded to um, be able to be used in all 58 California counties. And what this online system does, it is allows litigants who may not be able to afford their traffic ticket or the, it will be expanded to afford their court fine and fee and to be able to request a reduction. So after they fill out the, the questionnaire with, with the variety of questions that it has, it goes to the judge and from there the judge will make the determination based on the online form that they fill in. And so when we think about administratively, how do we wanna make this program more equitable? We can see that in California, I think around 40% of residents in California speak a language other than English in their home. And so when they're trying to use this program to request a reduction and they want to go online, if their first language isn't English, then it might be a little bit difficult to make this program accessible to them because English isn't their strongest grasp. And so being able to, for example, and the Judicial Council of California is in the process of doing this, be able to translate this tool into other languages is a more administrative example of how a tool that allows people to, to request a reduction in their fine. This is an example about um, how translating the languages of this program can make it more accessible to non-English speakers. Okay, well, I appreciate everybody being here on our, our inaugural recording. I think we had some really great conversation. It sounds like we have a lot more uh, out there that can be discussed. So I look forward to seeing you all in the future. All right. I wanna thank Chris Hansard, Kent Pankey, Marshall Comia, Kara Anderson, and Carl Tanis for offering their perspectives regarding diversity, equity, inclusion, and the court's obligation. We can see the struggle we all face in dealing with these values in the court system. I also want to thank our moderator, Courtney Whiteside, for skillfully facilitating today's conversation. And finally, my thanks to you court professionals tuning in today. You face the struggles of turning the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion into something real every working day. Thank you. Be sure to take the survey question on the ethics webpage. Do courts have a duty to implement policies and procedures that ensure diversity, equity, and inclusion are applied to court processes? The options are, yes, these critical values need to be incorporated in how a court operates. Or, no, equal access to justice is already a core purpose of courts. Adding DEI is simply redundant. We will post the results on the ethics webpage. Watch the NACOM ethics webpage for another conversation coming soon on the ethical issues facing our courts. This has been a Question of Ethics conversation. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. A Question of Ethics conversation is a regular segment on ethics, courts, and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, in the Court Manager Journal, on the Court Leader website, on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. 
Our address is ethics at nakamnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you'd like to listen to again, but you don't want to search the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section on the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it was the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time on the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.